This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. And this is the show that takes you into the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre, and tries to find an answer. Caroline, what are we What are we looking at this week? And I, I know we're taking, taking a look back through the years. Mm-hmm. As you know, Sean, uh, I have a bit of a fascination with royalty and old-timey life. Uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> if they lived in anything called a court. Yes. She loves a court, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, it feels so far removed from our own lives nowadays that it's almost like looking at an alien race. Um, but as we've come to realize this past year, the concerns that were paramount hundreds of years ago may not be all that different from ours now. Um, you mean disease, I'm gonna guess? Yeah, like okay. take the Black Plague. Uh, sometimes this COVID crisis has felt like that in miniature, because we know a lot more about everything now. Yeah, definitely in miniature, because at the time people thought the world was actually ending. Mm -hmm. Biblically. Right. But this is not about the Black Plague or COVID, because I wanted to do a bit of a lighter show on this, the week of my birthday. Uh, light? Well, light for you is... Light for me. Okay, so who's dying this week? <laughs> well, this episode, we will be talking all about Renaissance poisons and hygienic horrors. Ooh. I think now more than ever, appreciating the incredible leaps and bounds we've made in the fields of medicine, makeup, and just overall hygiene is really necessary and uh, could give us a good perspective in that... It hasn't been so much worse. So uh, we're going to be talking about the time when the real horror was your doctor? Kind of, yeah. I mean, I'm not going to be going into full medical quackery today, but let's just say this episode has a lot to do with the ways we used to poison ourselves without knowing it, and the way we used to make ourselves sick before we understood germ theory. Oh, are we going to do any intentional poisonings too? We might talk a little about that. Uh, I just want to say at the outset that I will be taking the bulk of my information from one of my favorite nonfiction books, which you know, Sean, The Royal Art of Poison, Filthy Palaces, Fatal Cosmetics, Deadly Medicine, and Murder Most Foul by Eleanor Herman. Uh, one of Carrie's top pleasure reads of the last year. <laughs> yeah. I really highly recommend getting this book to read if you want more of the craziness I'm about to go into because I'm only able to lightly scratch the surface in this episode. And you can also, as I did, get this book on Audible. Cough, cough, use our link, uh, audibletrial.com slash ain't it scary. They'll hear it. <laughs> um, but it's a great listen, too. Maybe not while eating. Although you do put it on when I'm cooking quite a bit. Cooking's different. <laughs> Cooking's different. 
yeah, a bit of a warning. When we get into the hygienic horrors of the Renaissance, things are going to get gross. But let's start with poisons. Poison was a big thing back in the day. Like, using it to kill your enemies. A woman's weapon. <laughs> so you say, but even though nowadays people might favor a gun or a knife, royals and aristocracy centuries ago wanted to be sneakier, while also playing on the advantage that modern-day forensics and pathology wasn't a thing yet. So Right, so all poison was undetectable. Right, you could stab someone, but people would basically be able to figure that out. But poison, poison was different. Sometimes it was said to be poison and it wasn't poison at all. But if someone was poisoned in the Renaissance era, it was a lot harder to trace the culprit. It may make you uncomfortable to know, Sean, that the center of the poison trade was the land of my forefathers, Italy. <laughs> um, well, it, it does change the way I'm going to look at meal preparation in this house going forward. <laughs> Both the ruling De Medici family of Tuscany and the Venetian Republic itself set up whole poison factories dedicated to churning out both toxins and their antidotes. And they would test them on animals and condemned prisoners. I mean, that's if you can sell the disease and the cure, you're, you're making money on both ends. That's just smart business. Right. While the Romans had been famous for their plant-based poisons, like hemlock, which Socrates uh, famously died from, Renaissance poisoners were more into heavy metal poisons, like arsenic, mercury, and lead. Oh, not heavy metal like uh, thrash riffs. No, but I do want you to insert a guitar, a sweet guitar lick there. Um, I'll do my best. <laughs> My favorite poisonous personality from Italy is Giulia Tofana, listed on Wikipedia as a, quote, Italian professional poisoner. So that's Ooh, fun. That's incredibly fun. I want to know everything about her. Well, you're about to know most of it. Uh, she happens to be one of the most prolific killers of all time. Oh. Tofana was... I mean, if you're going to make a living doing something, you got to be great at it. And she was the best. Tofano was born in Palermo in 1620 to a mother that was executed 13 years later for having murdered her husband with poison. Oh, sure. So it runs in the family. <laughs> yes. Uh, at this time in history, it was pretty much impossible for women to escape abusive situations in their households. Many of them were trapped in dangerous marriages without a choice. They really had no rights. Mm -hmm. Divorce was not an option either. Especially from the woman wanting to leave the man. Well, because you'd basically been given as a gift to your husband. Yes. And a lot of these were arranged. A lot of it was like little teenage girls and old creepers. It was not a good situation. Um, if a man beat a woman, it was basically shrugged off as like, oh, she deserved it. If a woman was raped by her husband, she was his property and he could do it as he pleased. Uh, so no one really deserves to be in this situation. No, no. And some of these victims turned to Julia Tofana. Julia was very sympathetic to women dealing with domestic violence and spousal cruelty. She was so sympathetic that she began making poison called aqua Tofana mm. that she would sell to women looking to escape abusive marriages. What's that new scent you were trying out called? 
<clears throat> Aqua Tefana. <laughs> Aqua Tefana was disguised as a beauty product or religious oil, which was appropriate because Julia's original business and her basically mob front, so to speak, was that she created cosmetics. Ah. That's why she was always in the apothecary. That's why she had all this stuff going on. She's making makeup. This girl sure, stuff. Sure, yeah. Don't, don't, don't look over here, officer. This is just blush. Mm-hmm. Women would be able to stick it with their lotions and perfumes, like right out in the open, and they would never be suspected. Well, be careful when you put it in your lotion. Next to them. Aquatafana was made up of lead, arsenic, and belladonna. And the recipe itself may have even come from Julia's mother and could have been what she used to kill Julia's father. Oh, family secret. Mm-hmm. Its claim to fame was that four to six drops of the clear, innocuous-looking poison was sufficient to destroy a man. That's like a Harry Potter poison or a Game <laughs> yeah. of Thrones poison, mm -hmm. the Tears of Lease. Oh, yes. You would discreetly purchase Aqua Tafana from Julia or her daughter, secretly add a few drops to your abusive husband's super wine, which I'm sure he was ordering you to bring him. Super wine? Soup or wine. Oh. I was like, super wine, sign me up. I mean, back in the day, it probably was super wine. And then you just sit back and wait. The poison had no taste and symptoms appeared slowly. And it kind of looked like a flu or another illness that would just progress severely, but not so fast that the dying men wouldn't have time to finalize their will or repent for their sins got to finalize you got to finalize that will well that that is important um a murderous wife could be comforted by the fact that the men would be able to gain entry to heaven and provide for them after death because they would leave their wives everything of course because their affairs are now in order well but what would happen if they died without a will wouldn't ever their wives get everything anyway uh, I'm or not sure how it worked back in the day. Or is it like your brother gets everything and your wife? It might just be like your your next of kin, you know, your inheritor, which would usually be a man. So, yeah, everything was great. The guy would stop beating or raping or abusing this woman because he was dead. Uh -huh. But he was in heaven, so everything was fine. Two birds. Yeah. And suspicion usually wouldn't fall on the woman because it looked like natural causes. And there were a lot of natural causes to die from in the 1600s. Well, because you couldn't do an autopsy beyond like, well, his humors must have been off. Yeah, I mean, a lot of them, if they saw some sort of like hole in the stomach, they thought that was being burned through with poison, but that could also be an ulcer. Mm -hmm. So they didn't know. Some people said poisonings had happened when they hadn't. So back to Julia, um, her clients were really secretive. Uh, yeah, you would think so. Yeah, you didn't want to implicate yourself after poisoning your husband. No, because you need to get that it. money. Yeah, and not get killed. Yes, that too. So Julia worked on a referral system. And if a former client sent someone her way, it was because that prospective buyer could be trusted and really did need help. Well, she's, so she's like a weed dealer? That's not a foolproof system. Uh, well, it was for her for a while because Julia was able to get away with this for almost 50 years. Wow. That's a half a century with no snitches. <laughs> so. And, and no stitches because, you know, 
She was doing great. Uh, and that's why you should respect a strong, smart, powerful lady, because she will get away with stuff for at least a, a good long while. So how many men were killed with her poison? Well, we're getting there. Because, Sean, there are no perfect crimes, uh, especially the more and more people get involved. Yeah, and the more bodies. Yeah, so Julia's Julia Tafana's poisoning empire came crashing down with just one woman getting cold feet. Mm-hmm. In 50 years. Mm-hmm. This woman was vetted by Julia and bought the product to eliminate her husband, who was abusive, but just when the man was going to eat his tainted soup, his wife stopped him in a panic. Um, she was just feeling guilty. She got cold feet. As the story goes, the husband, who was not a good dude, beat his wife until she confessed that she'd poisoned the soup. And that's why she was stopping him. He brought her to the authorities in Rome, where she was further tortured until finally... She gave up Julia and the whole operation. If you're not going to kill him, don't kill him. But once the poison's in the bowl... Well, he, he beat her into telling him. Stopping him was the problem. Yeah. I mean, afterward, I'm sure she was like, man, I wish I had just let him eat that soup. Julia was really popular. And she was able to escape <laughs> yeah, I'm sure arrest. With, with, I'm sure with the women in town. With a lot of people. She was able to escape arrest initially under the protection of some locals and then hid in a church where she was granted sanctuary. Wow. Word started to spread, though, and the rumors began to circulate that Julia had poisoned the water supply throughout Rome, which isn't really her MO, but people were getting hysterical. And there's a there's a powerful there's a powerful scary woman out there, mm, which is even worse. Got to make her a monster. Yeah. So people were freaked out, even those that were originally pro Julia. A mob overtook the church, and they were forced to give Julia over to the authorities, who then tortured her until she eventually confessed to the deaths of around six hundred men. Wow. Between the years sixteen thirty three and sixteen fifty one specifically. It's interesting. Was she the murderer or was she an accessory or was she a, like a co-murderer? She facilitated the murders mm -hmm. of all these men. And they also tortured the names of some of her clients out of her. Julia Tafana, along with her daughter and three employees, was executed in July 1659. Her body was then thrown over the wall of the church that had given her sanctuary and some users and purveyors of the Aquatafana were also executed, with other accomplices being bricked into the dungeons of the Palazzo Pucci, where presumably their remains lie to this day. They got cask of Amontillado'd? Mm hmm Alive? Yeah. Why? Because this was not a great time to live, Sean, and certainly not a great time to be caught being a poisoner. It's just such a labor-intensive execution, isn't it? Yeah, really is. Now, if you want to, to hear more of this story, there's a great video by Bailey Sarian on Facebook where she does her own makeup and tells this story. Um, she has like a whole nail polish line now named after like Aquatafana and stuff. So check that out. But I do want to add a little epilogue. Near the end of his life, the composer Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart mm -hmm. became convinced that he had been poisoned with Aquatafana specifically, 
stating, quote, I feel definitely that I will not last much longer. I am sure that I have been poisoned. Someone has given me aqua tofana and calculated the precise time of my death. This was in 1791, more than a century after Julia had lived to make her last bottle of aqua tofana. And we do theorize now that Mozart probably died from natural illness or disease, but the legend of Aqua Tefana lives on. Yeah, that's interesting. So, like, was someone, was there a, a poison around that time called Aqua Tefana? And I don't if know. there was, was it the same recipe? I am I am not sure. Um, and there is still speculation on how Mozart really died, but it seems likely it was most likely. Salieri, illness. of course. <laughs> Oh, yes. No spoilers for the movie Amadeus from 1980. <laughs> uh, yeah, get around to it, guys. Come on. <laughs> uh, so to go a little further in the Renaissance poisoning world, let's move back a bit from Julia Tafana to the time of Henry VIII. Hey, here's our guy. <laughs> yeah, that turkey leg eating king. We love Henry on this show. Well, I, I like learning about his time. He's a terrible, terrible yeah, person. He's a fat, weird murderer. <laughs> Kings especially were incredibly paranoid about having their food poisoned, which is understandable because, as you said, Henry was a fat, weird murderer. <laughs> and Henry's Hampton Court had over 200 people employed in the kitchens, from cooks to carvers to bakers to butlers. I mean, there was, he was a job creator. That's Henry. an economy. Yeah. One cranky employee, though, could bring down the whole empire. So, what could you do if you wanted to eat, which. Henry did. <laughs> oh, he gonna eat. But you didn't want to risk dying. F food tasters? Mm-hmm. You employ tasters to try everything you eat or drink before you do. Now that's the job. I don't want to be the chef. <laughs> well, if it's poison, the taster does drop dead in front of you. Sure, but it's like having a burglar alarm. You have it so that you never need it. If they see a, a poison taster standing there, who's going to try to poison the king? It's stupid. That's true. The men who made Henry VIII's bed every morning had to kiss every part of his sheets, pillows, and blankets to prove they had not smeared poison on them. <laughs> like, God. Okay, guys, I get it. Thanks. There's a lot of poisoned fabric drama um, back in the day. The same caution was taken with new clothing, especially gifts. Queen Elizabeth I was not allowed to accept traditional queenly gifts, which would include perfumed gloves and sleeves, because these two could be poisoned. Oh, sure. Something that could seep in through your, uh, your I, skin. I guess. Um, now, this isn't without precedent. In 1587, the French ambassador to England, Baron Chateauneuf Souchet, there's a name, <laughs> plotted to have one of Elizabeth's gowns poisoned. Clearly, he wasn't successful because she lived quite a while after this. Mm -hmm. Ten years later, the Spanish Jesuits hired a worker in the Queen's stables, Edward Squire, to smear poison on her saddle pommel. You guys just can't get any food in her, any poison in, in her mouth? I guess not. To their chagrin, the Queen always wore leather riding gloves and she felt no effects from any poison on the saddle. Oh, I thought they were trying to poison her butt. No, it's like that little nubby thing, I think, on the saddle. Everyone wears gloves when they ride a horse, don't they? I guess. Uh, but hers were thick. They were leather. He also tried smearing poison on the chair of the queen's favorite, the Earl of Essex, but apparently it didn't... 
like poison his butt or whatever uh, because nothing happened. Yeah, so he was, Squire was so inept that the Spanish started to believe that he must be a double agent. (laughs) This guy's not trying to murder anyone. Yeah, so they literally tattled on him and themselves to the British who had Squire hanged, drawn, and quartered. They they were so uh, displeased with his murder attempts that they just... They're like, ugh. They thought, hey, he, he, they thought he was a double agent. Look, we give up. We've been trying to mur- murder you with this guy. <laughs> you know, kill him. Uh. So as a constantly suspicious royal in Renaissance times, what else was there to do to try and prevent poisonings? Well, it sounds like you just have to not wear any clothes, have all your food <laughs> tasted. So you just got to be a nudist... Um... Yeah, a nudist with a food taster is a safe king. (laughs) Or you could get some poison detectors or antidotes. Poison detectors. Mm -hmm. Now we're taught. I didn't know we had this technology. Get into it. Yeah. First up, we have unicorn horn. Oh, of course. (laughs) Which is apparently a rare item you could maybe find in Asia or Africa or on the Arctic coastline. So narwhal tusk or or uh, elephant tusk or rhino horn. We'll we'll get there in a minute. Mm -hmm. Royals would wave the horn over their food and sometimes dip it into the food or drink. It was believed the horn would sweat, change color, and shake if the poison was detected. This is stupid. I hope (laughs) you kept the poison taster around. Yeah, me too. Some even thought these horns would just render poison harmless if it was in the meal. Some threw unicorns into the, you know, some threw unicorn horns into the palace well, so the water could never be tainted. Not the whole animal. <laughs> no, but every horn was extremely valuable, worth around 11 times its weight in gold. Charles IX of France received an offer of 100,000 crowns for his unicorn horn, but refused. I wasn't able to find a way to convert old French crowns to U.S. dollars, but it's a lot. For shame, Caroline. (laughs) Well, Queen Elizabeth had one valued at 10,000 pounds, and that was enough at the time to buy a castle. Oh. So it was that much. It was castle much. It was castle much. Okay. Uh, And and you're just waving this thing over your uh, French toast? Or dipping it in. And in Elizabeth's case, she also drank from a unicorn horn cup that was promised to explode if it ever came into contact with poison. You have to at least seal that thing up with um, salad bowl finish. Yeah, um, you know that. that. Well, you just bought a a horn, a drinking horn. I just bought a buffalo horn to drink beer out of you. Yep. Well, 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 hold on, but maybe we're learning something. This is going to negate all the poisons. No, that's a buffalo horn. In this my is beer. a unicorn horn. It's different. Okay, so it'll make it spicier. <laughs> well, sadly for these royals, the unicorn horns were really usually the tusks of a narwhal, as you mentioned, which wasn't officially discovered till the 1700s. Mm-hmm. So I guess we can give them that one. It's sort of the unicorn of the sea. <laughs> till then, unicorns were more believable. They've seen horses, so why not a horse with a horn? But unfortunately, narwhal horn has no poison detecting or healing or negating properties. Oh, you don't say. Mm -hmm. But I mean, if you weren't rich enough to afford a unicorn horn, but you still worried that you were important enough to poison, you could wave some emerald, aquamarine or amethyst over your food and just be extra cautious that way. You got some emerald in your wedding ring. Mm -hmm. So I'll just I'm always set, baby. Uh, if you've read the Harry Potter series, you might recognize Bazaars. B- 
bezoars? Bezoars? I I read that as bezoar, but I don't I don't know how to actually bezoar. pronounce it. You might recognize bezoars as another antidote. Bezoars are disgustingly gallstones or hairballs expelled from animals' digestive tracts. Yeah. Yeah, do they mention that in the Harry Potter? No. But how they would use them back in these times is that they would be ground up and ingested or set into rings or dropped into goblets like a barfy Jaeger bomb. Oh, no. Yeah, so just imagine like dropping your cat's hairball into your wine and drinking that thing up. I feel like it wouldn't even stay together. It would start to like, there'd just be hair in your wine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> A lot of the Renaissance poison paranoia culminated in the infamous Affair of the Poisons at the French court. In 1676, Marie-Madeleine Marguerite d'Aubray was executed in Paris for using, you guessed it, poison, aquatofana, to ah. kill her father and brothers to inherit their estates. During her execution, she, she stated, Half the people of quality are involved in this sort of thing, and I could ruin them if I were to talk. So Ugh. she really did do it. How did they catch her? I mean, how do you catch someone for uh, doing the poison? Not sure. Hmm. But her little death row uh, confession sparked a hysteria in the noble circles that would see up to 367 people in the next three years arrested in and around Paris, with 36 being sentenced to death. For poisoning. So it sounds like a rigged witch hunt to me. A sorceress poisoner named La Voisin was burned at the stake in 1680 for witchcraft, with her daughter Marie being kept for questioning. Can we get into sorceress a little bit? Uh, I assume she was just like an apothecary and they called her a witch. But she did have a bitchin' name, La Voisin. It's like Cher. <laughs> why do you why are you like the voisin you know um so she marie, a drag queen <laughs> i don't know but th that would be a great character to do marie her daughter uh revealed that noble women angling for the position of king's mistress had poisoned or planned to poison others who held that role so they could replace them among those implicated by Marie was the Countess of Soissons, the Duchess of Bouillon, the Duke of Luxembourg, and one of the king's current mistresses, the older Madame de Montespan. Oh. <laughs> the Madame wanted to kill her rival for the king's affections, Mademoiselle de Vantage, <gasps> as well as the king, because hell hath no fury as a woman scorned. Marie stated that the plan was to give the mademoiselle a poisoned gown or gloves. As you do. As you do to a lady. Sure, you gotta poison her butt. <laughs> and the king would be poisoned by a tainted written petition for a prisoner's release that when open would consume the king with toxic fumes and kill him on the spot. Well, that sounds like quite a trick. It's elaborate. It's like something out of an X-Men movie. <laughs> Neither of these worked out. And when the king, Louis, found out about the plot, he panicked. He would have to allow the police to question his longtime mistress, who, by the way, was also mother to several of his children. Oops, and people didn't know this already? Uh, I think it was an open secret. <laughs> 
So he shut down the whole investigation and anyone else who mentioned Madame de Montespan's name in connection with the affair of the poisons would be executed or locked in solitary confinement. I don't care. I don't care who tried to poison me. <laughs> la, 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 la. Fingers in his ears. While it seems that the Madame had given the king various kinds of love potions over the years, not poison, to try and keep his interest, it's less clear whether she ever tried to actually have him or the Mademoiselle really killed. Was she slipping love potion number nine? <laughs> I think it was like, you know, hair of a dog, blood of a goat. I don't know. One mm -hmm. of those things. Satyr, probably. <laughs> as long as we're dealing with fictional animals. Though Mademoiselle de Vantage did indeed become sick in 1680, those in prison for the affair of the poisons had been in jail for almost a year at that point. Mm. She died in June 1681, and the king requested no autopsy be performed. In case Madame de Montespan really had poisoned her, he just didn't want to know. Oh, right. Oh, la, 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 la. <laughs> mm -hmm. However, it seems probable that the Mademoiselle actually died from complications relating to a miscarriage, and her illness coinciding with the frenzy caused by the affair of the poisons was what caused the suspicion that the poisoning had been successfully carried out. But God, who didn't die in childbirth? Uh, yeah, not, not a good not a good time. But now that we've discussed intentional poisoning, let's get into poisonous cosmetics and horrifying hygiene practices after the break. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. You're here, which means you love podcasts, but are you looking for another kind of entertainment on the go? Audible is the leading provider of spoken word entertainment and audiobooks, ranging from bestsellers to memoirs, news, business, and more. By signing up for a free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash scary, you'll receive access to thousands of titles with one credit toward any audiobook and two Audible originals, free during your trial and then with subscription each month after. Personally, my favorite Audible title is also my favorite book, It by Stephen King. I went into this audiobook ready to judge because I've loved this novel since I was a kid. But between the stellar production value and the truly breathtaking narration performance by actor Steven Weber, I was 100% all in. If you like this podcast and have a strong stomach, I think you will be too. Not into audiobooks? No problem. With podcasts, theatrical performances, guided meditations, and more, Audible offers something for everyone. So what are you waiting for? Get started now. And hey, you'll be helping support the podcast. Visit our link at www.audibletrial.com slash scary for a free trial. That's www.audibletrial.com slash A-I-N-T-I-T-S-C-A-R-Y. Audible. Listen more. Welcome back. In the first half of the show, we talked about intentional poisonings in the Renaissance era. Now, Carrie, we're going to talk about people who just managed to kill themselves by accident. Yeah. 
Now that we've gone over the legit poisons, let's talk about some that people used and didn't even know were bad for them. (laughs) There are a lot of these. Let's talk cosmetics. We all remember Queen Elizabeth I. In every portrait, she has this extremely pale white complexion. Mm -hmm. She wanted to show that her skin was as pure as her soul. Now, this is very problematic. (laughs) I'm just just saying why she did this. Um, Because at the time, a flawless complexion was proof of God's favor. So she used a pasty foundation comprised of egg whites, white lead ore, vinegar, arsenic, Uh hydroxide, and carbonate. She pulled this trend from Italian noblewomen, and it became the fashion in England, much to everyone's detriment. Couldn't you make your face white without lead and arsenic? Yeah, you'd think chalk or something, maybe, but it gave her this kind of silvery, refracting light thing that I maybe made her look ethereal. I don't know. But the lead absorbed through the skin, and it could cause hair loss, paralysis, skin corrosion, dementia, and more. Mm. How did she do with it? Deal with it? How did? Yeah, how did she do with it? Uh, not great. <laughs> um, she died. Uh, she was losing her mental faculties. She was very ill, probably heavily contributed um, by her cosmetics. Maria, the Countess of Coventry, was known as a great beauty and wore layers of the thick lead-based foundation and bright red rouge. And then she died at the young age of 28 after suffering migraines, receding gums, loose teeth, and tremors. Loose teeth. Yeah, she's just like, oh, there it goes. They're just falling up and happens sometimes. The press at the time even called her a victim of cosmetics. So even they were like... She wore a lot of this stuff. It's probably not good for you. Why? So there was some knowledge that this was stupid. I guess. They wanted to be beautiful. They wanted to be like Elizabeth. But if you're not in the mood for a lead-based foundation, <laughs> you could use a mercury-based one instead, oh, Sean. even better. Yeah. Quicksilver. <laughs> mercury was great at filling in wrinkles and concealing blemishes and freckles. But when absorbed through the skin, it too caused health problems. Yeah. Uh, Birth defects, fatigue, black teeth, paranoia, depression, and death. Just a bunch of paranoid, black-toothed corpses. Yeah. And if you use arsenic face powder over your mercury paint, because obviously you want to set your Luke Sean... You'd end up with scaly skin, tingling in the extremities, headaches, anemia, and an increased risk of all different kinds of cancer. What was the advantage of the arsenic? Um, you know, snatching that look together. (laughs) It really puts the phrase dying to be beautiful into sharp perspective. Beat for the gods and soon meeting God. Mm -hmm. Beat to meet God. Remember how I mentioned that belladonna was used in aqua tofana um, because it was disguised as cosmetics? Mm-hmm. Well, while being deadly, belladonna really was commonly used in cosmetics of the day. Is this how this happened? Is, is Were they selling the... And then some idiot was like, oh, what's the, is this your face cream? And then drank it. And I was like, oh, yeah, there he goes. Yeah, cosmetic containers and some doofus was like, oh, well, it makes my face really white. Yeah, well, women would put drops of belladonna in their eyes, like eye drops, to make them sparkle and look bigger and brighter. 
and over time this would cause visual problems, increased heart rate, and blindness. Vision problems or visual problems? I can see people looking pretty fucked up. Both. <laughs> Big eyes and black teeth. That's how I like my men. <laughs> and always just looking around panicked yeah. and paranoid. Mm -hmm. If you want to just cleanse the skin, use your own pee. Sorry? Yes, you too, listener, please don't do this, can combine your own urine with honey, water, vinegar, and milk for that fresh-faced look. And then when you make it a recipe with honey, water, vinegar, and milk, then now that doesn't sound like a poor people thing. That sounds like something that rich people... Oh, would. everyone. Yeah. If you want to remove unsightly warts, to quote the accomplished lady's delight in preserving, physic, beautifying, and cookery... Catchy title. Take earth and knead it with dog's piss and lay it upon the warts and they will dry up and consume away. Great. Bonus, Sean, you also smell like dog's piss. I, I bet, did they spell dog's piss like D-O-G-S-E? Oh, it's P-I-S-S-E. Pisse. Love it. <laughs> uh, like you say, Tarjay. Mm-hmm. Well, it's fancier. Poe had to take a pisse. Mm-hmm. Transitioning perfectly from this, we can move on to the truly horrifying hygienic practices of the day. Let's keep in mind a couple of things here. First off, as a, as a human race, we had absolutely no concept of what bacteria was before it was discovered in 1676 by Antony van Leeuwenhoek. That is later than I thought. Mm -hmm. And even for a long while after that point, people at large didn't really associate cleanliness with preventing bacteria, with the germ theory of disease really being advocated much later in the late 1800s and early 1900s by Louis Pasteur and Robert Cook. Wow. So what caused diseases before that? Demons. <laughs> Demons in the blood. You got ghosts in your blood. <laughs> so people really weren't concerned about cleanliness, especially in the very important areas of cooking and cleaning. Secondly, we didn't have indoor plumbing as a common thing in even palaces until at least the 1800s. This will become important. Um, I imagine it was immediately important. <laughs> well, for instance, back to Henry VIII, he had a great house of easement, a luxury two-story toilet facility at Hampton Court, something like 28 holes in it. Oh, good for you. So this was like a, like a mass dump site. Yeah, so it was better than having it in the palace, but the human waste beneath the latrines would pile up head high before it was cleaned out. So imagine both going to use the House of Easement and cleaning up the House of Easement. Well, I have. That is a latrine at a Boy Scout camp. <laughs> Does the idea of maybe watching a play or an opera in the luxurious European theaters sound incredibly appealing to you, Sean? Oh, like the height of luxury. Mm -hmm. I'm going to have my little opera glasses. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be in a fancy... Everything uh, has gold on it. Mm -hmm. A fancy gown, probably. It seems like the men were basically in gowns. Well... If you time-traveled back to experience these performances, you may be too overcome by the smell in the place to enjoy the acting or singing. There were chamber pots in the private boxes so the aristocracy could enjoy the hours-long shows without missing a minute, and casually taking a pee or a number two in the middle of the performance. Now this is luxury. I <laughs> like the sound of this. Because I hated having to get up and go to the bathroom in the middle of, uh, you know, Avengers Endgame. 
well, Sean, you would really want to make sure you're part of the aristocracy for this because one Parisian evening, the Comte de Bussy reported... Sorry, say that again? Comte de Bussy. Okay. Reported that two noble women who will go down in history named Madame Lesson and Madame de Tremouille each took giant dumps in their respective chamber pots and, wanting to get rid of the foul smell that they had just expended from their own bodies, dropped the contents into the audience below, who then angrily chased the ladies out of the theater. Good. I'm glad they did, and I'm glad their names were recorded uh, to history. Yeah, I mean, I love how this kind of stuff was, like, worth writing down, because could you believe... That they threw their poops on everyone. That's the grossest. Th- How could they think that wasn't going to bring the show to a screeching halt? I don't know. The 1%, I tell you. I hate people who don't pick up after their dogs when they uh, mm-hmm. poop outside. Now imagine how psychotic you have to be to throw yours on other people. In a show! In a show. Like, not like some sort of bell going through the countryside thing. Bonjour, bonjour, you're throwing it out the window. Silence your cell phones and don't dump your... Dumps? Dumps. <laughs> now, Sean, you may be saying, Carrie, this is gross. This isn't scary. Yeah, I already said it was gross. But imagine, like... Watching Romeo and Juliet and getting some rich lady's poop dropped on your head. That's pretty terrifying to me. Oh, yeah. I think this works very well within our podcast format. Uh, th- well, this is th- this has been about murder uh, for a lot of it. It's certainly horrifying. Yeah, no, this, this fits right in. <laughs> but being serious here, the frightening thing about any of this is that there are just so many ways to get sick or die or both in the Renaissance. Aside from the obvious, you had to be worried about poison. You could do the poisoning yourself, but without even knowing it, uh, by using toxic makeup. But the hygiene practices of the time just really take the cake. (laughs) The stinky urinal cake. You may think that palace life would be so much less hideous and stinky than a night at the theater. And you would be so, so very wrong. Does the French Palace of Versailles seem like the height of opulence? Yes, those ladies visited, and uh, they were they were taken back in time, remember? And it seemed very opulent. There was a garden party. But maybe if they went inside, they would have had a different story to tell. Because visually, while it is very opulent, as uh, we love from RuPaul's Drag Race, bacterially and aromatically, it was probably closer to an overflowing porta potty at Coachella on a hot day. <laughs> Male courtiers tended to relieve themselves wherever in corners and on stairwells just in front of people uh with the servants having to clean up after them so they would turn their backs just to the wall yeah if they felt like it yeah this kind of thing was such a problem that over in england edward the sixth had to make an official edict in 1547 forbidding anyone to make water or cast any nuisance within the precinct of the court don't cast a nuisance. Because everyone's just being everywhere. Is casting a nuisance farting? I think it's it's pooping. There shouldn't <laughs> have to be a rule about that. He made one. It was an official edict. Elizabeth Charlotte, sister-in-law to Louis Fourteenth, reported of Versailles that the people stationed in the galleries in front of our room piss in all the corners. It is impossible to leave one's apartments without seeing somebody pissing. I love how much they said piss in the Renaissance. Never pee. Never urinate. Always pissing. Well, I don't think they'd invented the word pee. Well, women tended to be more private about their bodily functions, but they couldn't always. 
a lady-in-waiting to Caroline, Princess of Wales, was attending to her royal mistress for hours, and it was forbidden by custom to ask to be excused to relieve herself. So eventually, she just had to pee on the floor in front of everyone. Did she pop a squat? Uh, yeah. Yeah. There was a lot of it. It almost got Caroline's satin slippers all messed up. Oh, like like a big puddle on the floor. Yeah, Caroline was like, whoa, hey. Yeah, it was, it was bad. Uh, the English and French monarchies would move from palace Wait, to palace. Wait, what happened to the girl? Um, she, she cleaned it up, probably. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the, I, I, sometimes these stories end with like, and then she was executed. <laughs> no, I think it was just like, oh, well, you know what? Fair, fair play. Uh, we didn't let you go. So... <laughs> Uh, the English and French monarchies would move from palace to palace many times a year, mostly to give servants an opportunity to scrub the place clean of all the accumulated number ones and twos. <laughs> While this fact is very underreported and very hilarious, it's also incredibly disgusting. Yeah, it's like how I heard Ron Artest um, used to just pull up all the carpets in his house um, every because? month. Uh, because they would have a bunch of dogs inside and they would just shit everywhere. Yes, um, in this way, Louis the Fourteenth is very much like Ron Artest. That's before he was meta world peace. <laughs> Let's get into some other hygiene beliefs and superstitions that plagued Renaissance nobles. You may be aware that the Romans were very into bathing. They had almost a thousand public bathhouses in Rome alone. Yeah, they didn't just bathe there. They were into the whole experience, Sean. <laughs> No, I mean it was like it was a little like a public a place. Oh, to do I thought business you were making like a and have gay sex. There you go. All right, the church declared in its infinite wisdom that bathing was a form of sinful hedonism practiced by pagans, and that a thick coating on the dirt uh, of dirt on the skin showed Christian humility and kept illness from entering the body. Well, the first half. They were onto something with the first half, actually, but but the uh... that bathing was hedonism. Practiced by pagans? Yeah. Well, keep in mind, though. Not, but it's just not a bad thing. No, but keep in mind, um, they did view Muslims as pagans, which they are not. And Muslims would wash very frequently um, as part of their culture. Mm. And they were like, well, we don't like what they do. So we'll just... You want to be like them? <laughs> you want to wash your hands? You want to smell nice like those guys? Yuck. Physicians themselves began to believe bathing was dangerous, with one health manual stating, Use not baths or stews, nor sweat too much, for all openeth the pores of a man's body, and maketh the venomous air to enter and infect the blood. It's the air that's the problem. Yeah. So they wanted the pores closed, and they wanted them covered in dirt, so even if they opened, they had a nice stopgap there. And if you don't have enough dirt, just get some lead and mercury. Mm-hmm. Royalty took this to heart in varying degrees. While Queen Elizabeth I bathed the unusually high amount of once a month, <gasps> Queen Isabella of Spain bragged that she had only bathed twice in her entire life. Oh, Isabella, no. <laughs> and Elizabeth's successor, King James, never bathed at all. What? Mm -hmm. Well, you would have had to. What about after he was born? Yeah, okay. They had to hose him off. I know, he just, he still had the placenta just years on his later. Head. Uh, Louis the Fourteenth stank like a wild animal, reported the ambassador from Russia. <laughs> so much so that Louis's mistress was forced to douse herself in perfumes to mask his smell rather than her own. Yeah. He'd be like, ugh, your perfume is so stinky. And she'd be like, 
you're stinky. <laughs> the next story is gross, but so bizarre I had to include it. So if you have a weak stomach, maybe skip ahead a couple minutes. Louis the Fourteenth was just the grossest. Like he was just the grossest. <laughs> mm -hmm. He had such terrible personal hygiene that an abscess formed in well his anus. Okay, which became a fistula. What is a? F mm. In so many words, Sean, uh, it's a starting point for serious infection that could spread throughout the body. It's really all we need to know. Okay, became it's so. A, it's a pocket of pus, isn't it? It's like a fissure. It's not great became so painful for him that he couldn't ride his horse, walk, or even sit on the throne, either kinds, without <laughs> discomfort. If you want the scary part about this, a brave barber surgeon named Charles-Francois Philly agreed to operate on the king. Mm -mm. Now, if this went wrong, it would probably result in his execution. So he only agreed to it if he could test out the surgery on human guinea pigs first. <laughs> He got 75 volunteers, which did, were mostly prisoners. Did they have fistulas? Uh, he just practiced on them. I don't think he was, like, that cautious about who had what. All right, step right up. Give me your butt. Some of them died, but the king's operation was a success. And so because of this, 1686 became the year of the fistula at court. I'm not making a joke. This is real. Like officially. <laughs> because anything the king did became all the rage. Courtiers were desperate to have fistulas of their own. What? With many male noblemen draping swaths of bandages over their butts to emulate the king. And then Stupid. prancing around like, I have a fistula. I have a fistula. This is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. People were pretending to have anal fissures because it was trendy. So take that, TikTok. <laughs> yeah. I know. I mean, anytime someone says, like, this trend's stupid, is it as stupid as the year of the fistula? <laughs> no. Exactly. No, everyone can wear their clothes backwards like crisscross if <laughs> yeah. they want to. It's not as dumb as pretending you have a fistula. Before we wrap up this truly gross bit of history, <laughs> let's discuss another kind of hygiene. Dental. Oh. Dental hygiene itself is really a modern thing. And America is the most intensive about it, especially about the whiteness and cleanliness of teeth. I mean, I've seen um, people from other countries say, like, are all Americans' teeth so crazy white? We're just very, very all about it, which is not a bad thing. But back in the day, no one really knew anything about dental hygiene. By the end of the 16th century, sugar was very popular with the nobles and even the middle class. Because it's great. It's great, and also it became a lot easier. I mean, they found it, first of all, and then it became a lot easier to procure and distribute, unfortunately, because of slavery. Mm -hmm. So, it doesn't taste that good, guys. Um, but because sugar became so popular, dental problems increased in abundance. It may seem hard to believe, but the skulls of medieval people have often been found to have great dental health. While those from the Renaissance era suffered several abscesses resulting in lost teeth, like so, on average. So it, arguably, maybe sugar is worse than the advances they'd made in dental hygiene were good. Yeah. Unlike the stereotype that medieval peasants have like rotten teeth, tooth decay was actually much 
less prevalent in the Middle Ages than later because of sugar. Sugar was used for everything. <laughs> Once they got it, they were like, oh, I freaking love this stuff. It's great. It was on vegetables. <laughs> it was used to preserve fruit. And it was even in medicinal remedies. Aqua glidenti, a.k.a. water for teeth. What was that new scent you've been trying, Carrie? <laughs> Aqua glidenti. Uh, was a mouthwash made primarily of sugar and water. Oh, my God. <laughs> and it was said to improve dental health and sweeten the breath. It was sometimes combined with some other stuff. It ended up becoming like a pink sugary syrup. And it probably would cover up the smell of rotting teeth for a while. But it would rot your teeth more. It's like drinking Coca-Cola. Mm-hmm. The wealthier you were, the more sugar you tended to consume due to the cost, and therefore the more rotten your teeth tended to be. And the fatter you were? Could be, yeah. It was said that Queen Elizabeth loved sugar so much that her consumption of it eventually turned her teeth black. Mm. Now, this may be an overstatement, but sugar wasn't the only thing that could have done this. Sure, the mercury on her face. <laughs> exactly. Also, or you... was it arsenic? <sighs> she had a lot of stuff going on. Pulverized stones like powdered pearls or even um, the teeth of dogs were crushed and rubbed onto teeth and gums to remove plaque and clean them. It would also, unfortunately, remove the tooth enamel. Yeah. And wear down the teeth altogether. It's like they talk about how Egyptians had horrible teeth because there was sand, sand. in all of their bread. Mm -hmm. Now... There wasn't really a lot of, like, toothbrushing going on, things like that. But people did use fancy metal toothpicks. And you can even have these put on, like, a necklace and made into jewelry. So it was, like, less gross that you were being hygienic. And these were favored to clean teeth, to scrape off the plaque. It would scrape off all the enamel, too. Wow. And wear them down. If you had a toothache or needed dental surgery, I laugh at you. <laughs> They would just yank that tooth out, uh, and if you were lucky, they would get you drunk beforehand. <laughs> <laughs> now, unless you were noble and could afford a surgeon, this would usually be done by your local barber with no stronger anesthetic than the house whiskey. Uh, how much medicine... I guess the, we'll save this for the medical quackery episode. I'm curious how much surgery barbers were doing. Uh, it was just a lot of yanking. A lot of yanking. If you had some sort of abscess or tooth cancer or gum cancer, um, you may be able to get it cauterized by a surgeon if you could afford that. Mm. But being a royal also didn't really help much. Um, King Charles VII starved to death in 1461 after an infection in his jaw from a rotten tooth made it impossible to eat or drink. And he just slowly died. Oh, <laughs> that's horrible. It's horrific. Yes. The Charleses haven't had a lot of luck, which I think kind of translates into modern day. Uh, there has actually been question on whether Charles, if he does ascend to the throne uh, in England, the current Charles, if he will take the name King Charles or another name because it's like cursed. Oh, interesting. There's like crazy Charleses, this, this starving Charles. It's well, this, not great. This one would just be real old. Yeah. All I can say after all of this is just be grateful your cosmetics aren't slowly poisoning you to death. Uh, be grateful that people no longer just relieve themselves in the hallways right in front of you or on top of you if you're at the opera. <laughs> yeah. And uh, brushing your teeth is a common thing. Even after this hellish year, 
could be a whole, whole lot worse. Yeah, I mean, maybe I miss sitting at a bar or hugging my friends, uh, <laughs> but I haven't had anyone put shit on my head in like a really long time. Yep. Yep. It's just, you know, people might not think it's scary, but I find that just the amount of ways you could die back back in these times, especially, um, are really terrifying. <laughs> like, I would never want to time travel for more than maybe a day uh, because it would just smell and people would be either going to the bathroom or dying right in front of me. Um, and then you would get sick and no one would be able to help you. No. If I had a toothache, they'd just rip it out. Horrible. So. If you broke a finger, they'd just cut your arm off. <laughs> Might as well, right? So yeah, that's Renaissance Poisons and Hygienic Horrors. Amazing. Uh, Carrie, I've learned so much. In so much you didn't want to know. <laughs> no, I've gained so much appreciation for, um, yeah, just, just having a, like a, a running toilet and stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's really the little things that are the big things. So let's go have dinner. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out. Want to treat your pup to something special? When you visit www.barkbox.com slash scary, you can receive a free month added to your plan when you sign up for a 6- or 12-month subscription. That's an extra month of two fun toys, two full-size bags of treats, and a tasty chew at no additional cost. Recent box themes have included Home Alone, Liquor Treat, and a night at the squeakeasy. Poe loves trying out new toys and treats, and he was psyched to get a bark box. Your pup will be too. So sign up at www.barkbox.com/slash ain't it scary for a free month added to any six or twelve month subscription. That's barkbox.com/slash a i n t i t s c a r y. Give your furry friends something to bark about. Let's take a trip to the Bizarre Bazaar. Ooh. A series of strange events that have occurred in Egypt over the last week has sparked speculation among residents who say that the country may have been struck by a pharaoh's curse ahead of a forthcoming parade of ancient royal mummies. Oh, I can't wait. When is it happening? When can we get plane tickets? <laughs> Plans over the coming days to move 22 royal mummies from the Egyptian Museum in Tahrir to a permanent exhibition space in the National Museum of Egyptian Civilization have coincided with a string of bizarre and or tragic major incidents in the country. We all know by now about the giant cargo ship that ran aground and blocked the Suez Canal for nearly a week. Mm-hmm. Uh -huh. And it blocked millions and billions of dollars worth of trade for days on end. Was a mummy driving? No. 
But unfortunately, that's not the only problem plaguing Egypt recently. There has also been a tragic fatal train crash in Sohag, which killed 39 people. The collapse of a 10-story apartment building at Suez Bridge, which killed 18. A massive fire at Zagazig Railway Station. The collapse of a concrete pillar on a bridge under construction in Mariotia. And fires at the Mahdi Tower and a house in Minya. Oh, my God. Uh, there's sounds like a lot of fires to put out. How many of them were <laughs> caused by mummies? Well, former Egyptian minister of antiquities, Zahi Hawass, who listeners may remember from our Curse of King Tut's tomb episode, Love him. declared that, quote, the occurrence of these accidents is just fate and there is no connection between them and the mummies at all. Hawass pointed out that he had supervised the discovery of some of the tunes of ancient Egyptians that will be on display, and he had not been harmed himself. This Saturday is the Pharaoh's Golden Parade, and we'll see the ancient remains of the former Egyptian rulers transported through the streets of Cairo, complete with celebrity guests, musical performances, and more fun stuff. It's kind of like, what was that um, space shuttle that was getting towed all the way Oh, across the country? Yeah. Reminds me of that. That's very cool. Among these museum exhibits to be transferred in the parade are the mummies of the king's Ramses II. Oh, the great. Sequenere Tau, Tutmos III, and Seti I, and Queens Hatshepsut, Maritamen, the wife of Amenhotep I, and Amos Nefertari, wife of King Amos. These are big deal mummies. Exactly, which is why people are thinking that maybe this is all happening because of a curse. These are A-list mummies. Mm-hmm. Um, but why would they mind getting a little change of venue? They don't know. They're being disturbed. They don't like that. But they've already been disturbed. Been disturbed again. They're being moved from like one museum to another <laughs> one. And right? I really don't like this. So we'll see what else this week brings. But our thoughts are with the people of Egypt dealing with the very real reality of these recent events. Yeah. And can we get a security detail on that Egyptologist? I'm pretty sure he's going to be murdered by a mummy <laughs> now that he's tempting fate like that. Yeah. That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary, and check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash ain'titscary. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We'll be forever grateful. Yep, special thanks to our top-tier patrons. Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, and Robin McCabe. Two of those women gave birth to Caroline and I, and we love, um, well, we love all of our patrons very much. <laughs> we love them the most. Love you guys. See you next Thursday. Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe. Music by Kyle Ryan. You can check Kyle out at his YouTube channel, Music is a Verb. This has been a production of Longboy Media. <laughs> My name is Bill Huffman. And I am a former Cleveland News producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mahalovic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast, killer podcasts, and Slow Burn Media production. Subscribe today 
wherever you get your favorite shows.